Shalom and welcome to Sababush. I'm your host, Jake, and let's dive into a dose of Israeli culture. Today's guest is Guy Charette. Uh, Guy has always loved languages. Today, he teaches Hebrew in the INA LCO University in Paris, France. He has a BA in Hebrew language from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and an MA in Southeast Asian Studies from the University of London. Guy speaks seven languages and has been the host of Streetwise Hebrew, the TLV1 podcast, for about the last 11 years. Hey, Guy, thanks so much for being on Sababush. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a... A great pleasure. You know, I've been a fan of Streetwise Hebrew for for years, and it's surreal to to be speaking here in you know TLV One Studio. So uh, I'm excited to you know pick your brain a bit and learn learn about slang and Hebrew and and your relationship with it. Um, so I was hoping you know to get started, if you could tell us a bit about your relationship with language. Uh, you know, you have quite a history with with different languages and. I'm sure we'd all love to learn more. So I grew up in Ashdod, the south, 30 kilometers south of Tel Aviv, uh, the pearl of the Mediterranean, as I as I um, define it. And uh, very early on, I think when I was three, I I already um, had had a little notebook where um, I dictated to people around me, um, like to write uh, songs and poems and other rhymes in Hebrew. So language was very dear to me from a very early stage. I think at the age of five, my parents had to tell me not to correct people's Hebrew because you can't do it. Um, and even if I'm right, um, the adults have their right to speak as they want. Um, then I ventured to the neighbors. There was a neighbor who was an au pair from Germany. So I asked for German lessons. Another was was a Turkish woman, so she taught me some Turkish. So Ashdod and Israel is such a melting pot, right? So we have access to so many languages and to native speakers. And um, it was before the internet, so that was my internet, I guess, or my Duolingo. Um, and very early on, I saw that that was my calling. Language, languages, teaching Hebrew, learning languages, doing something with language. And later on, I started doing media, journalism, and I think my podcast, Streetwise Hebrew, is uh, kind of an overlap of the two, the, my, the media German me and the linguistic one as well. With your rich and robust history with languages, how does Hebrew compare? You know, you've, you've had experience in a great variety of different languages. What, what makes Hebrew special? Why, why are you currently teaching Hebrew? What is this uh, fascination? It's special because it's my language. It's my only mother tongue. So all my life I'll have mistakes in English, whether I like it or not. And in all other languages I'm trying to, to maintain. Um, in Hebrew, I'm at home. And in Hebrew, I feel I have all the nuances there and I can, I can share them with the world. I think language is, some people think language is just grammar and books, but for me, language is life, it's culture, it's politics, it's so many things. It's language and, and you can teach language and uh, in so many ways. So, for example, um, taking street signs, taking shop signs, menus, this is goldmine for, for teachers and for learners alike. 
because you can see so many things. Here they translated from English. Here they transliterated from French. Here they, I can, th- I can see what they were thinking about when they wrote this and that. Um, this is a little trip or voyage into people's mind and, and linguistic inner self, as I call it. Um, I don't, I never studied Hebrew as a foreign language, so I don't, I, it's hard for me to put, to put myself in the shoes of the learner, but I'm trying to mimic what I would do when, when I learn a language, uh, just the opposite way. Just like the Ashdod of, of yesteryear and of your growing up has changed over the years and it probably looks a lot different today. How, how has Hebrew evolved? How, you know, to today's focus will be slang and sort of the evolution of the Hebrew language. How, what have you noticed in, you know, your exploration of graffiti and on the streets? There are many, many things that I, that I notice. For example, one of the things um, that it's been here for years, but um, I see it and I hear it a lot is that the preposition al, ein lamed, for example, which means on or about, is kind of conquering all other is kind of eating all the other prepositions. For example, back in the days we used to say I'm really satisfied from you, literally, but it means that I'm, I'm really content um, from, from you, or I'm really happy with what you are. And right now people say instead. Language evolved and it's fine. Uh, at first, it sounds to me as a mistake, but um, it's a mistake that is is here to stay. So, I might as well join join it. Uh, I don't say mabsutalecha yet, but I see that al um, there's also ham al ham al glida means fancy, really want ice cream, things that we didn't use really in the past. Other things, a lot of words in Arabic, um, Palestinian colloquial Arabic that entered the language, um, lots of Englishism, lots of translation from English. Uh, if we take the word mensch, that used to be, it's a Yiddish word, which means a man, a person. Back in the day, our parents and grandparents said, he's such a mensch, right? Because a mensch, good person. Today, I can see two 20-year-old meet each other and hug or tap on the shoulder and say, manishma, makore mensch. So in a, in a way, it's hey man from English, translated into Hebrew, but then added the etch at the end, re-meeting the mensch, but it doesn't mean uh, mensch in, in Yiddish anymore. So we have here flowcharts and, um, and arrows running in different ways and, and periods in history. We have Yiddish, Hebrew, English, and you can talk about other direction. For example, mazel tov. In American English, Mazaltov in Hebrew. So Mazaltov in Hebrew travels to the shtetls of Eastern Europe. It becomes Mazel, Yiddish pronunciation. Then it gets to New York, Mazaltov. Then it gets to France, to the French Jews or anyone that says Mazaltov, stress on the first syllable, like in Yiddish. In Hebrew, you say Mazaltov, stress on the Zal. I spoke about it on the on the on one of the episodes of the podcast. So this is fascinating. What happens to words when they travel? And they might travel back to the same place, but having different clothes. So that's, uh, that's what I like. You mentioned your background in media and journalism. How, 
you know, with the travel of those different words and terms, how are they currently entering like the discourse? I remember hearing a story about secular Tel Avivis starting to say Chaste Hashem because they were watching Shtisel or, you know, in various songs, TV shows, movies. How, how do you see these new words like Haide or, or similar words popping up? So Haide was, is an old word. Haide was used also in Ladino, in Judeo-Espanol. And our grandparents said it and our parents said it. Then it stopped, and now it's coming back through songs and other things. You know, it's enough that there would be a TV commercial which would play uh, every night at 9.30 and on the radio to make people use stuff or someone really famous using it on their Instagram story. You cannot predict it. Once you start hearing Hi Day around you, you, you see that it's back. But you can't sit in the academy in the in your academic um, library and think what will happen to words in a month from now, in a year from now, and where will the Hebrew go, etc. What we can tell is that, you know, English is very prominent and Arabic on the other side. Other, other words come from different, different languages, but it depends on, you know, on the streams. Um, I, I didn't mention that I studied uh, linguistics at Hebrew U um, when I was younger um, in the um, in the Mount Scopus campus, campus. And it was fascinating to see people who were learning Hebrew and sometimes actually understanding that what they had learned in Teaneck, New Jersey was not exactly the Hebrew that we speak here. And I actually um, feel that Many times foreign Jews or Jews from the diaspora who come here or anyone who studied Hebrew abroad and come here um, sometimes have to deal with the fact that, oh, wait a minute, this is not what I, what I studied. My teacher had a Yiddish accent because I went to Talmud Torah or um, I didn't know that you don't say this word because it's too archaic or too fancy. Um, there is another thing which I call the... Um, Ulpan refugees and Sunday school dropouts, people that um, have dormant Hebrew in them, um, love-hate relationship with Hebrew because they were sent to Sunday school on, on Sunday and they wanted to play football or soccer. And um, they come here and or they stay where they, where they are. But there is um, you have to deal with their psychological, linguistic inner self in order to unblock some negative feelings about Hebrew. There's also, I think, a blame and a bit guilt of old kind of DNA, Jewish DNA of um, we didn't go to Israel, we stayed in the diaspora, um, our cousins were in Palestine, Palestina, later Israel, fought here. And all of this is also part of how we learn a language. Uh, we are not uh, just, uh, you know, empty blank page in yalla we have where we have a baggage with us it could be family history language and culture that we carry with us that we schlep with us might i say you mentioned this this guilt and sunday school dropouts how how do you find you know currently your your students in in paris how or or experiences with you know north americans or other people that have sort of learned these not bad habits but archaic words things like that how 
how do you unblock that? How, how, what's the process of getting them to, instead of using, you know, a, a biblical term, you know, sort of transform? So in Paris, it's, um, I work at Inalco at the, uh, the Language Institute of uh, the Sorbonne and other universities, uh, the University of Paris. Um, and there in class, it's not the end of the world if someone, if someone uses an archaic word suddenly. I might correct them or not. As teachers, I think we have to decide sometime when to correct and when not to correct. For example, if someone makes five mistakes in a sentence, you're not going to correct the five mistakes because the person will stop talking. You want them to keep talking. Uh, in class, we are in a very kind of safe environment. So I need to be there for the student. It's a bit, it's a lot of psychological work as well because the person needs to feel safe, to speak, to make mistakes. And when I, when I want, I correct them. Um, I think that they have to be exposed to a lot of uh, Israeli modern Hebrew. And together with it, they they take a lot of things. It could be just the intonations that we use, which are different than our grandparents' uh, intonation, who spoke Yiddish and Arabic and Ladino and others. Um, the words we use, that will come later on. Once you read a lot, you read a lot of uh, Instagram stories, you read uh, a lot of newspapers, magazines, etc., WhatsApp messages, WhatsApp groups, Facebook status of people. And later on, it will, it will become a second nature. So the biggest problem is not using archaic words. Because if you have archaic words, you already have something. The biggest problem is, is dealing with the verb system um, and uh, dealing with the shoashim, the roots, and knowing how to play with them. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing is reading. Reading is really important when you learn the language. You need to write and to read, uh, to understand, to listen. These are all different skills that we have to take into consideration together. In a way, you want to be marinated in the language. And uh, reaching it when you're not in Israel is not the easiest thing. Because uh, if you are in Paris or in L.A., uh, you have to have self-discipline and to have your plan of how you're going to be you know, immersed in the language. And how do you create that immersion, you know, currently in your classes? Because, you know, as, as an Ole, doing a few ulpans, you know, since arriving in Israel, they weren't always so effective. And, you know, that was in Jerusalem. And now I live in Tel Aviv. What, especially like outside of Israel, how, how do you create that immersion? How do you keep students up to date? So a lot of homework, and the homework could be uh, reading something on on social networks. It doesn't have to be in a book. Uh, but also, it's important to have a good book. Uh, an old, kind of, um, it sounds old-fashioned maybe, but you need a good book, a uh, good textbook with text for your level, uh, with exercises of what we learn today that you'll do in the next few days. Um, other things is really uh, finding your the thing that tickles your fancy. For example, you love specific kind of music from Israel. That's a gateway. That's a way to, to, um, to get stuff from Israel because you're already interested in the, in the language. You love gardening. You're getting a gardening blog in Hebrew. You learn these words that you know so well in your language. Um, you love classical music. Okay, so you listen to the classical music uh, 
radio network in Hebrew, and you're listening really carefully in what the readers say between the pieces. Um, there are tons of examples, but basically, it's just like a doctor that would not prescribe the same medicine for all of us. You need to find your uh, key to uh, to Hebrew. Holding that unique quality and you know you're saying that each person should connect in their own way to Hebrew and you know develop their own vocabulary. I'm curious about trips that bring people to Israel such as birthright taglit. Why why are certain slang terms expressions why do you think they've emerged as sort of like uniting words like sababa Chaim Sheli, you know, these like classic, if you were to look online and see like 10 words that you need for your birthright trip that aren't necessarily that useful, how, how did they become so popular? So to be honest, I, I never did Taglit, I never did birthright, and I was not on one of these buses, right? But from what I know, there's always a soldiers or two uh, or three that join each bus. So we have 30... Americans, 18 to 25 or 30-year-olds with a few Israeli soldiers and they meet Israelis in different different places where, where they meet and they have some bus hours together. So, of course, the soldier who is 18, 19, 20 going to teach them some, some words in Hebrew. Um, and Sababa should be there because Sababa means great and, and everybody uses it all the time. Um, then how how some words make it and some don't it's i think it, nobody can answer this question um let's look at the academy of the hebrew language when they invent new words um they invented kaletet uh, for a tape tape cassette back in the day and it stuck it's a word that was received by the um by the people uh, who would who would have thought everybody said uh, no it's a bad word kaletet sounds weird and stuff but they use it on the radio, on TV, and then we started using it. Some other words like, um, let's take hacker. The word for hacker by the academy is patzchan. Lefatzeach is to crack. Patzchan. I never heard a person saying a sentence with the word patzchan. I heard it on the radio because they wanted to introduce it. Why patzchan? Um, no, because of the tzaddik and chet. I don't know. Um, and, and sababa. And sababa, yes. Nobody can answer what was is accepted de facto by the public. Um, but definitely if there is a song that gets 2 million views on YouTube within a few days and it's, it uses a catchphrase, okay, there's something we can talk about. Um, songs for Eurovision back in the days were also a vehicle. Army, the army is really important in creating new slang terms. All of these are different factors, but it's, uh, the, you know, language evolve and it's just like life. We don't know where life will take us and um, we cannot foresee what words will be here next year. Um, what I like about Hebrew is that you can look at the new words and you can find Russian and Polish and Yiddish and Arabic and different kinds of Arabic. Moroccan Arabic, Tunisian Arabic, Algerian Arabic, Libyan Arabic, Egyptian Arabic, etc., etc. Um, and you start scratching, scratching the surface, and you find gold. You know, there, 
there are differences between a 90-year-old originally from Algeria and an 18-year-old raised in Tel Aviv. Who, who's usually using slang? Because there is older slang and maybe like a, a Gen Z slang that's developing. But in your experience, do you notice older people using newer slang and younger people, you know, also, you know, using like avarnu et paro vegamna voredze and nefalet asimon, like things like that? Listen, I think it's very contextual. I think that we need to, um, let's talk about a specific situation. Okay, and a 90-year-old person, Yemenite, from the Yemenite quarter in Tel Aviv, goes for a walk through the Hakar Mill Market and talks to an 18-year-old who passes by um, and have has coffee, an espresso in his hand, and they say something to each other. Okay, now what is the dynamic? I don't know. Maybe the the younger guy says something in a, uses a slang term, and the old older person says, "What did what did you say? What what did you mean?" And he teaches him something. Maybe it's the other way around, um, you know. But definitely, the ninety year old when he meets other ninety year old from the same background, they're going to use their their level, their vocabulary, their terms, and maybe um, the pronunciation. Of course, is going to be the way they pronounce words, maybe it has some Yemenite, Yemenite Jewish flair to it. Um, the young guy went through the Israeli melting pot, probably was born here. And, and even if he's from the same neighborhood or even from Yemenite descent, has some some words he know from his grandparents, but he doesn't use them on a, on a daily basis. Um, I think that um, what we want to say I think that, for for example, when I go to the shuk, or everybody goes to the shuk, um, we try to speak in a way to create one level with the seller. You're not going to come back from university and speak as if the, the seller is a professor. So this is something that is, um, we do it automatically as human beings. We set the right register uh, and we speak with a person in front of us in the register that would be supposedly his or hers. So, uh, for example, I I don't teach chamesh shekel, which is a mistake. You need to say chamisha shkalim. But I might use it in the market because that's how you speak in the market. Uh, I won't say uh, fancy words um, because it's not the right moment and right place to use them. Um, it's a very short, abrupt communication. Kamaze, how much is this? Uh, is it from today? Give me two. Maybe not even if it's masculine. So uh, market language is a market language and it's fine. Uh, but then when I go to a poetry event, maybe I, I sp- definitely I speak differently. And this you do it in English in your language without thinking twice, right? So that's the same here, same thing that happens here. So you... You mentioned in English, you know, similar similar process happens. Have you noticed that in other languages? You know, you have a rich experience with different languages, French, Indonesian, uh, among others. Do you notice that evolution or creation of slang or, or new? Definitely. New oh, definitely. 
the young people today, my students, some of them are 17 and 18. Um, by the way, my students, uh, the age is interesting because it goes from 18 to 80. Um, so I have very versatile uh, crowd. Um, of course, the 18-year-olds uh, from the suburbs of Paris don't speak the same way as the 75-year-olds. Yeah, yeah, it's different. And of course, uh, in the market, you kind of speak in a much more simplified way. Um, very often the sellers uh, in Paris, for example, the sellers are immigrants or hailed from different countries. They have foreign accent. Uh, you don't speak Shakespearean French with them. Um, it happens everywhere. I saw it in Thailand. I saw it in Indonesia. Um, in Indonesia, there are, there are more than 700 languages um, in 17,000 islands. So that's another story. But... Um, Basically, um, when, when, when we go to the market, um, we simplify many, many things. Yeah, unless we go to a corner and have a chat, a really, you know, long chat about life with someone, um, conversations are quite short and, and concise. Do you think also compared with other languages that you've experienced and taking into consideration in Israel, dark humor, maybe... There are things that are okay to say that might not be okay in other languages. Are there red lines in Hebrew or with slang? Are there certain things that, whether it's a swear word or something else that, that is sort of off limits? I spoke about it in one of the episodes of my podcast about the, the word Shoah, Holocaust. That used to be a taboo for our parents' generation and for our generation and the younger generation. There are Shoah jokes, Holocaust jokes, and people can say Shoah about things which are not the Holocaust. For example, describing the queue at the post office and saying it's Shoah. Some people were shocked by, by, by that, especially diaspora Jews, Jewish listeners, were, were shocked that Israelis would use the word Shoah in such a profane way but this is how language and life evolve um, one of the things I, I demand from myself and from my podcast is to be authentic to describe the language as it is um, even when it's not you know beautiful or correct so to speak uh, Shoah is used today um, it used to be a red line it's no longer a red line Right now, Israel is in a war. There are some other red lines. There's always red lines, but I think they are changed and, and you know, the circumstances change as we, as we go along. The Eretz Neaderet parody show, TV show, our Saturday Night Life, they coin many things and sometimes they get to the red line, cross them, come back, and then the next day, you know, people talk about it. Uh, they might agree, might not. So, yes, there are red lines in every society. In your own experience, are there, do you find yourself using specific expressions or, or words that you gravitate towards more, more generally or, you know, favorite, favorite slang that you have? Yeah, I have, I have some, some words that I like. For example, um, Words that I created or some other people created at the same time, so I'm not taking credit for it. Uh, for example, Todanke, which is Toda and Danke in German. So Todanke and the answer is Bevakashön. Uh, 
<laughs> so I might joke with my friends and say, Todanke for the coffee. Or, and to darling is Todain darling, to someone who was a darling. Um, so yeah, but I say to my friends, I don't say to strangers. Um, other things, just like any other speaker, um, I need to record myself. So in linguistics, when we studied it, they told us don't don't ever believe your informants don't uh, you cannot interview someone and ask ask them um, so when do you use this verb and they don't, don't don't expect them to know or to tell you the truth or you need to record people you need to record people have data analyze the data and then you can say okay this verb in the present tense is used how many times why when where um, so I cannot judge really myself because I do not record myself and check but um but I think I have um, so I grew up in Ashdod, which back in the days was a North African city with lots of families coming from the Maghreb from from Morocco, Algeria and Tunisia, Libya, etc. So the I'm from an Ashkenazi family, so at home I heard Ashkenazi Hebrew outside when we played outside it was more of moroccan hebrew so hebrew with more moroccan intonations um and i was able to switch code switch between the two speaking to old ashkenazi aunts one way and speaking to friends in another way and we all do it we all do it we're all able to do it especially migrant families uh kids can do it easily uh, it could be in Bir- Birmingham, UK, in Paris, or in San Francisco. Now, the thing is, um, I, I don't know exactly what I say when I speak just, you know, with a friend. But um, I grew up in, I was born in 1971. So I think I still use kind of 80, 80s and 90s slang, slang terms that we used to use when we were younger. And that's it. Yeah, I don't. I don't try to be young and use eighteen-year-olds right now slang. So I think I stick to my my generation. And I wanted to circle back a bit to the beginning, and you were talking about how you you like to teach and also think about language and or Hebrew and. And I was hoping you could talk a bit more about the relationship between language and culture and how it's developed over time how you've how you've seen it develop over time and and just like that relationship yeah so when we say when we say culture we need to say i think israeli cultures because um that's 20% of israeli population is uh, arabic speaker so they speak palestinian arabic with lots of hebrew words what happened there um what words for example my friend yasser uses in Hebrew when he speaks Arabic. Of course, Bituach Lumi and Kupat Cholim and, and Bank Lumi, he says in Hebrew. But some other words he might, he, he might use also in Hebrew. So he would say, uh, This is not Me'anyen. Me'anyen, interesting. Why did he use Me'anyen in Hebrew and not in Arabic? This is just one example of cultural context language culture and (laughs) so you need to know about a bit of history of palestinians in israel uh 
you need to you need to talk about about this minority and how they have to speak Hebrew if they want to work uh, to work with the Jews uh, so if we go high res on each story now let's take a Russian immigrant who moved to Ashdod to my hometown lives in a very Russian neighborhood there um, move she, she's 60 um, she raised kids here already so when we go to people's story we see that there's a lot of uh, you know first of all storytelling and story is important to understand language and then we can you know record Yasser record Raisa and record other people and try to understand their story through the language um, when I when you when you say culture and so first I'm gonna ask you whose culture and uh, and then I will kind of double click on it and and try to do the high resolution analysis um, I think that um, young people in in Israel today they are very exposed to American culture um, so they understand their passive English is amazing uh, their active English sometimes as well um, in Hebrew they tend very often to translate to translate um, things from English to Hebrew um, so we can we can also look at that point of view there are endless endless angles to uh, to decipher um, if you take um, Israeli Israeli dramas or Israeli movies or series for example you mentioned uh, Shtisel earlier um, there was Yiddish and Hebrew sometimes a bit of English as well um, so all these choices were really interesting why did they switch to Yiddish when they spoke about money why did they use this term in Hebrew and not in Yiddish why everything about this topic was only in Yiddish who are these people um, and and trying to understand their culture you know make you understand or try to understand their language as well or how we see culture in language etc speaking of Stiesel there are a number of other shows out right now that are creating more of a a melting pot of languages at once for example Kupareshi and having you know an Arabic speaker Hebrew speaker Russian speaker um, all at once uh, and at the same time a newer show on Khan Sovietska introducing more more Russian so how diving in a bit further into different TV series or, or movies do you what what power do they have you know if you were to say language and culture and like if the if the third end was entertainment how, how do you see entertainment putting forth language interesting so first of all when you mentioned Sovietska and you mentioned Stiesel um, look at how beautifully Israelis celebrate the language of their grandparents suddenly so this is something that back in the day was frowned upon people were like no I'm Israeli no I speak Hebrew I don't answer my parents in Yiddish or Arabic or Judeo-Espanol or whatever um, and now Sovietska celebrates Russian Israeliness and and um, Shtisel Yiddish Israeli religious culture and some other examples with Arabic as well 
So we can see in music that Dudu Tassa, who is a great musician who celebrates his grandparents' Iraqi musical heritage, um, although his father and grandfather swore him never to touch a uh, musical, you know, never to touch uh, music, um, because they said, no, it's just trouble and don't get into music. He went back and unearthed his family musical roots. Um, so I think, you know, th- this is uh, our cultural baggage and heritage is somewhere still uh, within us. It's coming back. And I think Israel is old enough today to deal with its past, talk about its past. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to read in the newspapers and magazines in Israel to see how much we talk about the past because there's so many unsolved issues. And the language is also a reflection of that. So suddenly we have a show with Yiddish. Suddenly we have shows with Arabic or uh, shows like Shnot Shmonim, which talk with many Moroccan, Moroccan Jewish terms. Um, this is a great celebration. This is something that was censored before, auto-censored by people who wanted to be Israeli. Now the melting pot is, you know, mature enough to accept also different kind, different manifestations of Israeliness. We see it also in the entertainment. We see it in commercials, TV commercials that have different slang terms, but also different accents suddenly. There's more variety, and it's fine. It's good. Different colors. And, and with your background, and I would say you have a finger on the pulse of, of language, do you, do you sense a trend? You just mentioned Israel's relationship to its past and its ancestors' past. How, how do you see things moving forward? For example, with, with rising numbers of French immigration, do you see more French entering the language? Or do you, do you notice any trends? So there's nothing new under the sun. You know, my migration waves change places and societies all the time. And, you know, I grew up in Ashdod. There were many French speakers. That's why I speak French. I should thank the Ashdod education system that gave us great French teachers. Um, and of course, today, when we have a lot of uh, Olim Chadashim from France, we're going to have more patisseries, boulangerie in, in different, kind, different places in Israel, and you'll get better croissant. Maybe some Israelis will learn that it's not croissant, it's croissant. But I'm sure there will be more, more, more to see. It's going to affect also the fashion, because uh, some of these Olim come from the fashion industry. Um, and uh, we're going to see it also, I think, in, in a few years' time when these people open shops and, and go to study, come to study fashion here or teach. So we're going to see lots of stuff ha- happening, happening. I think also lots of Olim coming from the U.S. Um, technology maybe might be interesting, uh, high-tech startups, ideas that um, you know are happening as we speak. They say also that after the war, all those um, miluimnikim, the reservists, um, will create new startups together on stuff they thought about during the war when they spent many hours together. Um, I can't say that I am. Um, I can talk about different 
trends. Um, but I think that um, we'll continue celebrating different kinds of Israeliness. So people will be less afraid in, you know, talking about how they grew up. Uh, for example, uh, in Ashdod, there were many uh, Georgian, um, Georgim, um, and um, we didn't know too much about them. Um, so people didn't speak too much about what is to be a Georgian Jew. And Georgia, I mean the Georgia and the Caucasus, not in, not in the U.S. Um, today, we hear more about this culture. It came through MasterChef, and it came through cooking, cooking TV show, and different, uh, you know, different kind of uh, arteries that, you know, different channels that brought, brought it. Sport, sport is a great way, but this is not special only to Israel. Sport was a way for many African uh, footballers to enter the French mainstream society. So it, it will happen here for sure. As we wind down a bit, and thank you so much, Guy, uh, as, as a way to get to know you a bit better in terms of your relationship with culture, I thought we could do a bit of a lightning round uh, and ask you a few questions, your favorite blink. And if you, if you can't think of something, feel free to pass. But uh, just as a sort of a, a winding down activity, um, what is your favorite Israeli food? Uh, pita with something inside. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about your favorite Israeli singer or band? Dudu Tassa comes to mind. A, a really quick, tiny gem. You mentioned Dudu Tassa and his relationship with his grandfather. I just learned recently that he took his grandfather, like the Kuwaiti brothers, and recorded his singing over their music, like music from the 30s, 40s. And that was, that was super cool. Um, what about your favorite Israeli author? Maybe Meir Shalev. Meir Shalev. And I have to tell you a short anecdote about, about him. Please. I was sitting in a Romanian restaurant in, the, in Shuka Carmel a few years ago when I saw a little sign there that said in a very humoristic way, if you suffer from something, allergies, etc., let us know. Um, Mitch. Mitch was the name of the restaurant. And I noticed that there was Nikud, the dots, the Nikud on the, in the text, and the Nikud was very meticulous and very correct, which is a rarity today. Not only Nikud in Bet, Kaf, and Pei that you can hear, but also Nikud in Shins, in Nuns. Someone knew what they were, what they were doing, and I was amazed. So I went to the cashier, the owner, but she was so busy with, with the Romanian food, so I said, I'm not going to bother her with linguistic you know, questions. But I wrote her a Facebook message late at night, and she said, huh, funny you should men mention, uh, mention this little sign. The author Meir Shalev had Romanian food here, and he was appalled by my atrocious Nikud. And he said, ma'am, do you mind if I correct your Nikud? And I said, sure, of course, I'll be honored. So we rewrote the text and he put the right dots in the right place. And that's the story of this. Just to show you that nowadays, to find the correct Nikud is, is very rare. You have to be Meir Shalev. His mom was a Hebrew grammar teacher 
and he used to say that his Nikud was his superpower. Nikud is hard, I studied it as well, I can't say I'm Meir Shalev, uh, I need to have a dictionary next to me, etc. But it's a dying art. It's, um, you know, very, very small number of people in Israel today can learn a kid, put the right dots in the right place. Such a cool story. And the final question, where in Israel is your ideal vacation spot? Mitzpeh Ramon. You asked me to not to think too much, so I'll say Mitzpeh Ramon. Mitzpeh Ramon is a great place to see the stars. It's a special kind of geographical phenomenon. If you've never been, Google it. Um, the pictures will 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 speak. Uh, it's it's a beautiful place and it's very quiet. It's uh, another spot which I like is Montfort, uh, which is an old crusader citadel in the north of Israel, which is beautiful. Well, guy, with that, thank you so much for coming on Sababush. It's it's really been you know an honor to to hear from you and and learn about get insights from you. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Simcha.